This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Channel podcast after we bit, had a bit of a, of a break uh, over the last few weeks. Indeed, but we're back with a, a vengeance, one might say, with a return to 1914, back to the absolute roots, to the Urwurzeln, I guess one might even say, um, because we're going to be talking about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and the famous or infamous or somewhere in between South Slav question and the outbreak of war, which is always, which is a topic that just seems so far back in the, the life cycle of the, the YouTube channel and the stuff we've been working on the last couple of years. But it's a fascinating topic. And we have uh, Dr. Mark Cornwall, who's one of the leading experts on the topic and kind of a a personal favorite of mine as well, since I used a lot of his stuff for my thesis way back when. So it was fun to talk to him in person as well. Totally. I found it super interesting as well. Like, um, I mean, you kind of have a rough idea about the July days and how complicated that situation was. Um, but yeah, there's layers upon layers, as he will eloquently uh, prove to us. And uh, yeah, I just have to say it uh, kind of makes you think uh, maybe we should at some point uh, visit also the decades leading up to World War I uh, in some form. Wink, wink. Ooh, some, some flow style hinting going on there. I like it. I like it. I won't spoil it yet. We have we have something I can tell you already. We have something planned, dear listeners. Um, it's not going to be a documentary on the Balkan Wars, though. That interview which we you're going to listen to right now it makes me think we should also do a documentary on the Balkan Wars. I was also getting those sort of urges when I was listening to some of his answers. Cool. So uh, without further ado, here is the interview with with Dr. Cornwall, and the link to his book Sarajevo 1914 is in the podcast description. So today, folks, I am joined by. Dr. Mark Cornwall for our podcast. And before I get into even the introduction, I want to say that I'm especially happy because I used Dr. Cornwall's work extensively way back in the days when I was slogging through my MA thesis and needed to know about propaganda and Austria-Hungary. So this is going to be a treat uh, to talk about some of his current work. Now, Dr. Cornwall is a professor of modern European history at the University of Southampton. He's published and edited many books on Austria-Hungary and East Central Europe, and is now working on a forthcoming book about traitors during the reign of Franz Josef. That sounds kind of like there's a lot of drama involved in there. But the occasion for our discussion with Dr. Cornwall today was the 
The fact that last year a book came out by the title of Sarajevo 1914, Sparking the First World War, of which he is the editor and a co-author. And this book focuses on Southeastern Europe, the South Slav question and the outbreak of war in 1914. And I should note those of you out there who've listened to our podcast for some time, uh, one of the chapters in that book was written by a previous guest on the podcast, uh, my fellow resident of Vienna, Tamara Scher. So all sorts of connections happening. Dr. Cornwall, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. All right. So let us begin, as is so often the case, with the title. Now, a lay person out there reading a book on a shelf and the title is Sarajevo 1914 might be forgiven for thinking, well, you know, that's a topic that's kind of well-worn, it's been done. But this book really focuses on the aspects that are closely, more closely related to Southeastern Europe, often simply referred to as the Balkans, although I guess that carries a bit of baggage sometimes. Why, like, how did this project come about? And what do you hope that you and the other co-authors have contributed to the historiography through this book. Right. Well, <clears throat> thank you. Um, well, this, this, um, this project came about because really of the anniversary of 2014, um, the centenary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, the anniversary of the, the centenary of the start of the first world war, of course. Um, and, I was interested really to try to uh, do something new for this anniversary. There were a lot of conferences going on at that point, and I thought what I wanted to do was really to bring together a range of historians, young and old, uh, from different who, who work on uh, this subject from many different um, uh, points of view, bring them together and really focus on uh, the causes and the effects of the assassination, and uh, really to reassess this, because I think, as you say, uh, you know, you might be forgiven for thinking that there's there's a huge amount, well, there is actually a huge amount out there. It's often said that it would take, um, you couldn't read everything that's um, on the subject, the causes of the First World War in your own lifetime, you know. So so there is a lot out there, and, pro and equally so on Sarajevo 1914. So the point of this, though, was to really to bring together um, a range of historians, um, some senior, some more junior, to reassess this from many different angles um, and to come up with um, new new research points of view. Um, and um, I was also, though, interested in, as you say, the, the South Slav question. I've always been interested in that. One of my great loves has been Yugoslav history and uh what one might call Balkan history, perhaps. But um, I've always been interested in this. And I've always wondered, well, why wasn't there more written about the South Slav question? And the more you get into this, you realise why. It is very complicated. So I saw this book also as a, a chance to try to make this understandable for um, a modern audience. And I think it does that. I mean, there's an, I, I write an introduction about the South Slav question in the book, and then it comes through as a thread through the book. So it is trying to think about what I think is really one of the most important uh, issues facing the Habsburg Empire before the First World War, actually, one might say, caused the First World War, the South Slav question, which I think has been very uh, underestimated. 
So I think those are those are the kind of the key the key points really to 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 have a reassessment of Sarajevo 1914, but also to delve into the South Slav question and see what we could come up with um, from a, a range of different points of view. All right. Yeah. One of, one of the formulations that I really liked, I think it was it was in the introduction, was uh, kind of framing it as looking at the tinder that the spark then eventually set off. And I think that was kind of a nice way of framing uh, what the book uh, gets at. So let us jump into our first question from a listener. And it's about another famous book uh, about the outbreak of war, Christopher, Christopher Clark's uh, The Sleepwalkers. And this listener would like to know what's your opinion about his sort of take on the outbreak. He kind of goes away from some of that uh, established, uh, you know, putting more weight on, on the German side of things. And, you know, in particular, he, he paints a vivid picture, let's put it that way, of the situation in Serbia. So how do you, how do you estimate his take on that? Well, that's interesting. I think, <clears throat> I mean, you know, it's a very readable book. And Christopher Clarke is primarily a historian of Germany. The book went down very well in Germany, because as you say, it um, took attention a bit away from Germany. Uh, it did not go down well in Serbia, because it had um, such a focus on Serbia. And um, Christopher Clarke refers to Serbia as a rogue state at um, one, one or two po points in the book. Um, I think... I think what's important is that, uh, and what is um, actually you know accurate, Christopher Clark refocuses our attention on Southeast Europe. He refocuses attention uh, on Serbia, perhaps perhaps over over um, emphasizes Serbia. But it's a very really dramatic start to the book, the first chapter. But I think it's very good that he refocuses our attention on the um, tension between. Austria, Hungary, and Russia in the Balkans. Uh, when I teach this, I always um, think to uh, compare to my students, I, I always say there are two key aspects to thinking about the course of the First World War. One is the, the problem of Germany, Germany feeling encircled and everything that goes with that. The other is the um, Austrian-Russian tension in the Balkans. And that often gets overlooked. So I think what's important in Christopher Clark's book is refocusing our attention on that southeastern uh, European problem. But having said that, um, I think he goes, um, if, we, if we kind of delve into how he thinks about the Sarajevo plot, um, I would say he slightly exaggerate we can say a little bit about this a bit more later perhaps but i think he's he rather exa over exaggerates serbia's responsibility here um i personally well it's not my personal view um i actually uh believe that um uh, Serbia did have a deep involvement in this plot in a particular way that we can talk about. But he is essentially saying that the Serbian government uh, knew about this plot, uh, uh, didn't do enough to stop it, um, and so puts a lot of responsibility on the Serbian government. Uh, I think that's going too far. Um, uh, but as I say, um, in other ways, he's he's accurate in in refocusing attention on Serbia. Um, so I think it's you know it's um I would also say actually um, it's no injustice to Christopher Clarke's. I think it's still a, a very readable book, but I think a lot of it is um, it's actually not as radical as it looks. Um, 
many decades ago, these kind of things were being said. It's just that they've been overtaken by historians focusing on Germany so much in the 1970s and 80s. Austria-Hungary rather get, got left behind. I think it's excellent that um, uh, the attention is refocused on this um, Austrian-Serbian dimension in causing the war. Well, in that case, let us stick to the Serbian focus uh, for our next question, which is a combination of two different questions that our listeners submitted. Um, so Serbia, essentially, when the ultimatum comes from Austria-Hungary, they accept nearly all the points. And the question is, did they do that because they were afraid that the Serbian government's connections to the Black Hand might be exposed? And I guess the corollary question to that is actually the title, I believe, of one of the chapters in the book. Why did nobody control Apis, the famous, uh, the famous agent? Yeah, well, Apis being head of Serbian military intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really interesting question. I would say, I would say straight out uh, no to the first question, which is, did Serbia accept nearly all the ultimatum? points because it was afraid its connections to the Black Hand might be exposed. I'd say no straight away. Um, I did some work on this a long time ago, 25 years ago, investigating Serbia and the July crisis. Um, I sometimes have a little look at that, and I think the my conclusions stand up in what I wrote on that. Um, the point is, well, we have to think about um, how Serbia behaved in the July crisis, how did the Serbian government behave? What did it know about this plot? Essentially, um, Serbia accepts nearly all the points of the ultimatum in order to avoid war. That's the basic point. But um, it was clear to me when I did research on this that um, I felt Serbia from the start was prepared to resist and um, Essentially, um, uh, Pasic, the Serbian prime minister, was trying to. Um, he knew that uh, he knew that Serbian military intelligence and the Serbian military were involved in some way in the assassination or had some role. He knew a little bit about that. He wanted to um, um, uh, uh, stand back from that and not suggest that official Serbia was involved in any way, uh, and. Um, my research, I think, I felt that basically, or I found that um, the Serbian government was very prepared to resist Austria uh, from the very start and would not agree to any infringement of its sovereignty, which was one of the points in the ultimatum that an Austrian, uh, Austrian officials would go in and try to find out what had been happening in Serbia. So Serbia was absolutely would never agree to that. But the point is that when they do agree to a lot of the uh, points of the ultimatum, it's because Serbia did not have the support uh, among the international community. And that includes almost across the board, almost, you know, other Balkan states were not particularly forthcoming. And what I really emphasize in what I've written about this is that Russia was not as uh, friendly, well, it was friendly, but it was not as supportive as what Serbia wanted. Russia did not say, oh, yes, we'll support you militarily. So at the key point when Serbia had to make the decision on whether to agree, uh, what to agree in the ultimatum or not, whether to agree to the ultimatum or not, um, at that key point, 
Serbia did not have enough support from Russia. And therefore, my conclusion essentially was that having been very resistant to the ultimatum, that Serbia backed down and agreed to a lot of the points in the ultimatum, except for that final point, which was um, allowing Austrian officials into Serbia, because that would be felt to be a full um, infringement of Serbian um, uh, sovereignty. So actually, the question as it's put uh, is not the correct question which we should be asking, really, because um, I would say, I mean, just to follow up that up a little bit, um, as, I, as I've hinted, Nikola Pashic, the prime minister, knew that Serbian military intelligence had a role in this plot in terms of they knew about it and they uh, helped supply arms to the Bosnian students and they particularly helped these students to get across the border into Bosnia. That's the key point, that Serbian military intelligence had control of these uh, border posts between Serbia and Bosnia. That's shown very nicely in the book, in the Sarajevo 1940 book, uh, Danilo Sharinac's chapter on that, uh, really brings that out very nicely. But, you know, what did Pasic know? Well, what we, what we, we think we know from the evidence is that Pasic uh, in early June and the government did know that some some uh, people had crossed the border with arms. Uh, that's about how much they knew. I think we uh, we don't know that. Uh, well, we think we know that. We think we know that Pasic didn't know about the actual plot, and he always denied that he knew about the plot. So the conclusion I always feel from the evidence, um, and you know, there are lots of varied conflicting reports on this, but the conclusion I think we can get is that the Serbian military certainly had an indirect role in this plot. I mean, they didn't plan the plot, but they certainly facilitated uh, uh, giving arms to these students and getting them across the border. Serbian government did not, um, if they knew anything about it, it was very vague. They didn't know about that um, these this was a plot to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So, Pasic, in managing this, kind of had to be very careful in July 1914. We should remember that this is the middle of an election campaign also in Serbia. That's, I always think, a key point. It was an election campaign, so he couldn't uh, really desist from um, uh, making some nationalist speeches, but he's having to be very careful how he handles this because he doesn't want to suggest that Serbia is in any way involved, even though knowing that they were. So, um, you know, I think that's how I would answer that question. Um, how far the Serbian government um, was linked with the Black Hand is incredibly difficult to um, find out. It suggests actually the Black Hand was some kind of very secretive, uh, tight group of people, whereas I think it wasn't at all. It was actually quite a large um, uh, network of uh, individuals, a very loose network. Lots of individuals were just part of this organization in a very loose way. So it's very hard to pin down and say who who knew what, actually. Um, but anyway, I hope that, that kind of clears up that the point about the ultimatum. Um, in the question, why did nobody control APIS? Well, he's head of Serbian military intelligence from August 1913, and this really goes down to the problems in Serbia in the previous 10 years. Um, 1903, um, uh, a group of army officers murdered the king and queen uh, in a really brutal way. 
um, and effectively put a new dynasty on the throne in Serbia. And the point is that the military and these regicides and the military then had a lot of influence over the previous 10 years in the political culture of Serbia. They're there behind the scenes. Um, Danilo Sharanatz's chapter in the book makes quite a lot of this and talks about these unofficial power centres around Serbia. In fact, there's almost dual powers, dual power between political culture, politicians, and then the military. The military had a lot of power in Serbia. So I think if you say, well, why did nobody control Apis? I think Danilo Sharanatz there is getting at it was almost impossible for the politicians to uh, uh, act effectively against the military, the government to act effectively against the military. They did try to reduce military power, but they had to be very careful because there was a danger of really of a military coup. Um, and things come to a head in 1913 to 14. Things come to a head in 1913 to 14. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's that, that's the reason that um, Apis is in a very important position as head of Serbian military intelligence and um, had a lot of uh, influence among the military, was respected. It was impossible to just remove him. Um, so um, I think, you know, he is eventually removed in 1917 and um, put on trial and executed. But that's a different, um, you know, his, his position had dramatically weakened by then. But in 1914, he had a very strong position, and it tells us a lot about um, the political culture in Serbia. I don't think I would go so far as Christopher Clark to say this is a rogue state, but I've always said this is this is a really quite an unstable state where uh, the politicians, uh, the Pashic government is having to be quite careful how it um, interacts with the military. It couldn't just kind of um, reduce military power. Yeah. It's it's, a, it's an interesting state because in other ways it's a very democratic state. You know, it has a it has a um, a very free press, quite a, democ- a democratic constitution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's actually Austria-Hungary would complain about that that it was a bit too free. You know, it was too <laughs> free with the press. Um, but the other side of it is that this has there's a, a strong military element in the state, which the politicians had to be very careful about um you know it's only 10 years since this really brutal uh, murder of the, the the king and queen and the fact that these people still had a lot of influence in this state so that's that's the kind of um hope i've kind of sketched that out um uh the uh, what serbia was like before the first world war really indeed yeah uh lots of gray areas and fuzzy lines when when trying to you know connect those dots of uh, of a series of events or decisions and so on makes it uh, makes it tricky but fascinating um our next question now goes a bit outside i think we kind of concentrated on the internal workings uh one of our listeners asks how the assassination once it happened was received by slavs in the region more broadly, both inside Austria-Hungary, but also outside of Austria-Hungary? Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't think there's any general, um, there's no general answer to this because not all Slavs think the same, of course. Um, uh, I would say that there are some people who were very happy about the assassination. And I actually give an example in the chapter I write in the book of this um, Serb woman 
who just went outside and fired off 20 rounds of her rifle to celebrate. Um, so, you know, there were some examples, you know, and she was arrested, of course. So there were one or two um, examples of people who who would celebrate. I'd say the some of the radical Serbian press celebrated. Uh, there's evidence of... Um, pleasure in Russia among pan-Slav circles, certainly radical circles. But I think, I mean, if one had to generalize, I think you would say that that's a minority view. Most people, whether they're Slav or not, most people across the Habsburg Empire, most people across Europe were pretty shocked at this. Um, you know, it's like thinking of um, assassination of JFK, really. Um, people knew where they were when this happened. That's clear in all so many memoirs. Everyone knew where they heard when they actually heard about the assassination. Everyone knew where they were, um, but I think most people were shocked. Um, then you have to think about well, those who were shocked initially and then kind of got over it quite quickly and you know got on with their lives. Uh, there are certainly a lot of those, and so I think I take an example. If you look at um, what what um, Czechs thought about this, what Czech people thought about this up in Bohemia, um, we get quite an interesting example there because often Czechs were quite sympathetic to the Serbs, and um, again. The, the general view is people were pretty shocked at the brutal murder, but um, you know, then they then there was kind of muted reaction, and they they wanted just to carry on with their own lives. So, um, and there are other examples where people were completely indifferent. I mean, I've I've seen some when I did some research um, in Croatian archives. There's a lot of um, material there about <clears throat> responses to the assassination because the Habsburg authorities actually sent out questionnaires to try and find out how people were responding in the villages and towns. <clears throat> and of course they got a very mixed <clears throat> view there. Um, some people they found communities were hanging out black flags and were, um, you know, in mourning. Um, and other, other, other people were pretty indifferent really. So it's it's a bit hard for this story to kind of measure, you know, how 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 did people respond? Sometimes we're looking at this through through the prism of well, who's writing the report on this, because if it was a Habsburg um, official who was pretty anti-Serb, they tended to they they tended to expect Serbs to be disloyal. They expected them to be indifferent or to be, you know. Uh, callous and so they wrote that kind of thing down in the report they said well most people just aren't you know they're not hanging out enough flags that kind of thing so um no so it, it's interesting i mean i think um uh one one, one can't um stereotype this but i'm i mean i'm always interested in the cases of individuals who went and celebrated usually they were arrested if they were in the Habsburg empire i mean it was an excuse to round up these people and um, put them on trial for anti-dynastic behaviour as as traitors, effectively, actually. Yes, uh, a topic, obviously, that uh, you're quite interested in. Um, good. The next question we have from one of our listeners switches the focus, or in this case, since we've talked about uh, the Slav population in Austria-Hungary, keeps the focus on Austria-Hungary. And he asks, he or she asks, was Austria-Hungary determined to go to war as a last gasp to save the empire? So essentially, even if the assassination hadn't happened, would Austria-Hungary have, have found some other reason, as perhaps Konrad von Hützendorf would have liked at different points, another reason to wage war against Serbia? 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's a hypothetical question because we can never know. But um, there were, as you say, Conrad von Herzendorf, the chief of the general staff, is a very well-known hawk who would be who was eager for war, um, preemptive war, and he'd been arguing for years that he wanted a preemptive war against Serbia and a preemptive war against Italy. And uh, you know, he he really uh, looked back on when he looked back on this, he said we should have had a preemptive war in you know nineteen oh eight to nine against Serbia, got in and crushed. Serbia because Russia couldn't have done anything about it, really. Uh, so there were certainly people like that. But I think it's one thing. I mean, when it, when you look at some uh, what some historians have written about this, there are one or two historians, perhaps who are very who are rather Serbian nationalist. I would say they tend to say that Austria-Hungary was looking at uh, any opportunity for war in 1914. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. I think. Um, it would have it would have to be a particular scenario that would uh, come up, which would suggest that Serbia was uh, really it would it was the last straw with Serbia. So when Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated, they do think that is the last straw, certainly. But events had occurred in the previous year, which suggested to Austria-Hungary that uh, Austria-Hungary's diplomatic position was much weaker. Um, they would need to reassert themselves as a great power in Europe. And um, the famous quote is often, um, you know, from somebody like the foreign minister, Count Berchtold, who said back in summer of 1913, um, the Serbian question will press for a solution by force in the not too distant future. So there's somebody who actually was rather a hawk. Berchtold was rather a hawk when it came to July 1914. Well, a year earlier, he had actually been warning that the Serbian question would need to be dealt with. Now, it's, it's one thing saying that. It's another thing saying, so they were actively looking out for a way to uh, wage war against Serbia. I think if this could have been done by diplomatic means, peaceful means to try to bring Serbia uh, to heal, then they would have done so. The key, the key point I always think to remember with this is that Serbia had been in a kind of satellite position, um, a satellite state, if you like, of Austria-Hungary in the 1880s. Um, and basically, Austria-Hungary very much wanted Serbia to be put back in that position. Now, Serbia was not going to agree to that. But that's that's the, the key tension, it seems to me. Um, Austria-Hungary was determined that Serbia must be put back in a satellite, in a, as a satellite state, economically dependent on Austria-Hungary, politically, militarily, etc. Um, so um, I don't think we could say that if it hadn't been for the assassination, they would have found another excuse to go to war. Because I don't think I don't think most of the elite in Austria-Hungary are desperate for war. And what's interesting, of course, actually thinking about this in a kind of hypothetical way, if Archduke Franz Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated, he was actually quite in favour of peace. So he would have been the pe one of the people arguing for peace. Uh, he'd actually argued for peace. Um, he didn't want Serbia attacked in 1913. So he was, you know, although actually you don't, you never think of Archduke Franz Ferdinand as a very peaceful individual. You always think of him as, you know, um, uh, 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 an individual who's hated by many, many people. As, um, uh, but but essentially, you know, who's a, who's a very rough um, and quite violent individual in his language. But actually, when it came to waging war, he did not 
want war against he did he did not advocate war against Serbia. So it's often said actually that you know ironically if he hadn't been assassinated he would have been one of the first um, uh, against uh, you know he would he would not have been in favour of war against Serbia in July 1914. So yeah, it's. Um, no, it, it tells you, it's an interesting question, actually, hypothetically. It gets us into, into thinking about uh, the problems of what this, what this empire actually, what, what the leaders of this empire really wanted to achieve. They, they were worried about their position in Europe, um, but whether, whether it was enough for them to go to war, and particularly to, to risk a European war, that's the case. They were prepared to do that in July 1914. Uh, I don't think they were earlier. Okay, now that question that you mentioned of the status of Serbia as a satellite state earlier and then not by the time uh, leading up to the First World War leads us into our next listener question, which has to do with the Balkan Wars, because they are, I suppose, one of the main developments that leads to Serbia being able to continue to establish itself. And the question is, did the Balkan or how did the Balkan Wars affect the South Slav question and the outbreak of war in 1914? I think we've sort of indirectly touched on a few of those points, but maybe you can you can kind of bring it together for us with reference to the Balkan Wars of 1213. Yeah, well, this is a great question because I mean this is this I would say the Balkan to start with, the Balkan Wars intensifies the South Slav question. It makes it it makes it um, a very dangerous, suddenly even more dangerous question in the eyes of Austria-Hungary. And I suppose we should say what we mean by the South Slav question is the danger that there will be some South Slav unification in the South, uh, which Serbia will be uh, will take the lead with to create a new um, greater Serbian state. And remember that um, Austria-Hungary has already lost its position in Germany with German unification. It lost its position in Italy with Italian unification. It just sees this as the next stage. We're going to lose all of these lands in the south with a greater Serbian state. So um, with the Balkan Wars, um, this effectively as I'm sure you know, this this removes Turkey from Europe. These Balkan states uh, are victorious over Turkey. They push Turkey right out of Europe. And the key point is that Serbia is allowed to double in size as a result of the Balkan Wars. Serbia doubles the size of its territory. It has well over a million more people in this state. Um, so that certainly, from the point of view of Serbia, I think it has, you know, um, uh, beneficial effects. Serbia, Serbian military are particularly much more confident after this. That leads into how they're going to behave in 1914. But it also means that Serbia is quite weak militarily. It's a bit exhausted after the Balkan War, so it doesn't want another war. Um, but yes, yeah, so the Balkan Wars has a, has a fundamental um, impact on uh Serbia and you know they they want they want Serbian leaders effectively want some peace now to try and um, reorganize the new territory in the south. Um, but this also the Balkan War certainly has a big impact on um, Austria Hungary. Um, uh, basically, they see Serbia double in size. Serbia looks much more threatening. That's one key point. Uh, but also, it's the case that the Balkan Wars uh, 
uh, Austria-Hungary would say damages Austria-Hungary's position generally in Europe and uh, affects the way that Austria-Hungary thinks about international diplomacy. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, Austria-Hungary during the Balkan Wars felt very isolated internationally. They expected Germany, Italy, or any of the other powers, actually, Britain, France particularly, to help to manage the Balkan Wars so that Serbia did not become too big. They wanted a kind of a stable solution which would suit what they wanted to come out of the Balkan Wars. That did not happen. And as a result, we could say, and this is what's often been said in the past few decades about Austria-Hungary's position, that Austria-Hungary comes out of this uh, the Balkan Wars feeling, well, we're not going to put our trust in the international community after this. If there's another big crisis, we're going to go it alone. So there's some very dangerous lessons learned from the Balkan Wars that Austria-Hungary will not rely on the international community. This is exactly what happens after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. They don't go and say, right, well, let's put this to the international community. How should we respond? They decide to go it alone. They're going to send an ultimatum to Serbia. And there's also, of course, a precedent of sending these ultimatums uh, back in 1913. In 1913, um, Austria-Hungary sent an ultimatum to Serbia in late 1913, telling Serbian troops to get out of Albania. So there are some precedents there already of this what's what's sometimes called militarised diplomacy. Uh, it's very dangerous. So I think um, yeah, that's 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 a key um, and that's a key impact of the Balkan Wars affecting the South Slav question and how Austria-Hungary will behave over that, that Austria-Hungary is not prepared to um, rely on international um, inter interventions. Um, uh, Austria-Hungary is going to go it alone. Um, I would also, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other issues here. I think, uh, you know, we might say, for example, another example would be as a result of the Balkan Wars, uh, Serbia-Montenegro, this very small state, Serbia-Montenegro, now have a common border. Uh, they didn't have before. That also looks very dangerous to Austria-Hungary. Looks So that's the start of some new uh, greater Serbian state. Um, yeah, and the Balkan Wars also increased nationalist tensions across the region, really. So, um, you know, it's sometimes said we might, sometimes it's said, you know, was the South Slav question, you know, did it really exist or is it just in the minds of Austria-Hungary's leaders? Um, but I think there's, there's a re I'm not sure whether it matters, really. The reality is the Austro-Hungarian leaders did believe that this was a danger. They don't know how to deal with this at all. And as a result of the Balkan Wars, they really think that Serbia is a potential threat. Now, again, we might say, well, Serbia wasn't that much of a threat after the Balkan Wars. As I said, the army was... Um, you know, weakened. But that's, that's, by, that's beside the point, because I think uh, Conrad and other... Austro-Hungarian hawks, they think, well, Serbia will become strong again, uh, will need to be dealt with. Um, yeah. And in 1914, again, as I said already, I think um, Austria-Hungary is increasingly rather isolated. Um, they are going to make sure either they, well, they won't rely on the international community, but they will expect their allies to support them, particularly they would expect Germany. Germany did not support Austria-Hungary during the Balkan Wars. Austria-Hungary in 1914 will tell Germany, you've got to support us this time, or, you know, we might as well just give up this alliance.
So it's a really great question. It really kind of opens up this whole issue about uh, why Austria-Hungary is even more paranoid in 1914, I think, and why Serbia is seen as a as a threat and you know seems to be behind the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Right. Yeah. No. That's an interesting an interesting angle, and I always. I always perk up when I hear anything about the Balkan Wars because it's not a topic I know particularly well, but it just seems to have all these underlying connections to what comes later. Now, one part of the Balkans that was not directly involved in the wars because, well, it was a part of the Kingdom of Hungary, uh, was Croatia. And there's a chapter in the book written by you about Croatia. And so I thought it would be interesting if you could tell us a bit more about what was going on in Croatia. What were the issues there related to this South Slav question? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I would say Croatia is rather under research. And yet, Croatia is really at the heart of the South Slav problem. If, if there was going to be South Slav unity within the Habsburg Empire, it would really focus on Croatia. Um, and things there are a bit complicated, but I try in my chapter in the book to try to set this out for the reader to show the instability in Croatia. And I think this is important because uh, many, quite a few historians in recent years have suggested that uh, uh, the Habsburg Empire, um, the rule of law, you know, they call it a Reichstadt. In other words, that this is a state um, uh, run uh, on the rule of law. And I think um, I would question that because, okay, theoretically it's a Reichstadt, but if you look at Croatia, you really make makes you uh, think twice, really, because you know, effectively, you've got it's an unconstitutional. Uh, there's unconstitutional rule in Croatia for almost a decade. Constitution suspended for many years. It's almost run uh, rough, roughshod over over political parties. There's, uh, as you say, I'm very interested in treason trials and treason. Well, there's the major treason trial in Zagreb in 1909, um, which is really on, on the basis of fabricated evidence. And I think the key point is that from that treason trial, uh, many lawyers and Croat politicians felt well. You know, we don't really have much justice. We don't have a rule of law in in Croatia, and they they took some serious. Um, they 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 um uh, they felt they learned lessons from that, and they turned against the empire. So I think Croatia is a really good example of an unstable, um, a, a point of instability in the empire. Um, I think it's also a touchstone, really, for the problems of solving the South Slav problem, because there are so many elements in Croatia, which are there's so many tensions in Croatia, which I can't possibly kind of completely unravel here. But um, uh, one of them would be Serb-Croat tensions in Croatia. How are you going to perhaps reconcile Serb, Serbs and Croats in Croatia? Another would be tensions between Hungary and Austria and Croatia. Croatia is officially part of Hungary, and yet Franz Ferdinand, for example, and others in the Habsburg elite were quite keen to bring Croatia back into kind of some centralized empire. Um, so I feel just delving into Croatia 
shows the real problems of, sol- of of any possibility of solving the South Slav question. I mean, I, I would also say, I mean, I didn't say this earlier, but I think you know, when we think about what is the South Slav question, there are many, many South Slav questions. Some people thought this was about uh, Yugoslav unity. Let's bring everyone who's a Serb or Croat Slovene into this. Some people thought this was some kind of greater Croatia, which should be created. We're all Croats. Let's bring them all in together. Some people thought this was a great Serbian solution. Um, that's how Serbia would often see it, people in Belgrade. So there are many different South Slav questions. I think that's the problem. There, there are many different South Slav questions. There was no set real, it was very hard to get a South Slav solution, essentially. But I always thought, I felt really when I was researching that chapter, when I've looked at Croatia, yes, it's complicated. I think, well, why on earth am I bothering? Why am I, why am I researching this? It is so complicated. But it really showed me why this is difficult to write about, essentially, and why it was difficult for the Habsburg authorities to to solve. So I think Croatia is really at the heart of this of this subject. Even though you know, so often historians focus on Bosnia, which is of course e- equally fascinating. But they think that you know, oh, Bosnia is a p- particular point of instability. I think Croatia is really unstable, and um, it's kind of you know. Uh, a powder keg waiting to happen, essentially. And of course, there, there were there were equally there assassinations going on in Croatia. You know, we just don't hear so much about them compared to um, to Bosnia. So um, yeah, I mean, actually, yes. And I I always uh, make the point that Franz Ferdinand himself said that Croatia was the heartland of the Balkan turmoil. So he himself said that you know what's happening in Croatia is rather important. He he was interested in Croatia because Croatia is obviously mainly Catholic. So he, he he was kind of had particular ties there. He had links with the Croatian aristocracy, and um, he knew that uh, Croatia was an important. Uh, place and in his view, it was rather, you know, perhaps rather more civilized than Bosnia, which he certainly didn't think of as a civilized, civilized land. So yeah, um, so I think Croatia, you know, there's a lot of research for historians to to do there to show why it's an important part of the puzzle, if you like. Yeah, there's no end of the layers uh, to this region, and I feel like. We just, or you just hit on a future book, Croatia, the powder keg within the powder keg, some sort of, some sort of Balkan inception uh, story. Well, that was quite the discussion. I have to say, the word that comes to my mind about revisiting 1914 and the outbreak of war is refreshing. Now, that's a bit of a, a strange word to come to mind, but it was intellectually refreshing for me to revisit this period because it's been a while since we've dealt with it in our projects that we have, whether they're the films we do or the, the podcast. So it was a pleasure to have you on. For our listeners out there, the book Sarajevo 1914, Sparking the First World War, is available and we will put a link in the podcast description on whatever platform you're listening to it and keep your eyes peeled for Dr. Cornwall's upcoming book which will be about traitors during the reign of Franz Josef. So Dr. Cornwall thank you so much for accepting my cold email invitation and joining us today. I really enjoyed it and I hope that I'm sure that our listeners did as well. Thank you very much, Jesse. It's been great to um, talk to everyone.